The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. I don't know if you can tell, but I got a little bit of sun this weekend. As some of you did as well, I noticed this morning, I uh, have not sunburned probably in about two years. So I don't know what that says about me as a person, that I need to get out more or what, but... Uh, I just didn't even think about it, and I spent uh, Friday, because, you know, it was a horrible hurricane day, uh, out in my yard working all day, and then Saturday I followed it up with another full day of working, and by Saturday afternoon about 5 o'clock I stepped, uh, I had uh, stopped for a few minutes, just rested, and I went back into the sun, and when I did, I felt it all across my arms, back of my neck, shoulders here, I'm like, I can't go out again, so I say that to you to say this for the few of you in here who this may apply to. If anyone in this room hits me on the shoulder today, I will punch you in the face without remorse. <laughs> Got it? Fair warning, all right? <laughs> so you know. We're here in Mark 4. We're going to look at, uh, again, these first, read these first 34 verses of Mark 4. Then we'll go to the Lord in prayer as we spend some time in the Word this morning. If you will, please look at verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. 
The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. We bow your heads in prayer. Jesus, we come now and we open up your word and we just seek to meet you here. And so, Lord, I pray as we work through these verses today that I will be able as best I can humanly to explain what Mark is saying, but that, that, Lord, then you will come and do all those things that I cannot do, which is take those truths and apply them to hearts. There are people sitting in this room, no doubt, who still, still have not made a decision about Jesus. There are those in this room who, Lord, like these soils we just read about, have, have heard, but have let so many things grow up around them to choke out the fruitfulness of the word. And so it is our desire this morning just to be reminded of some simple truths, just these these things that we have seen here, the the importance of 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 what you are calling us to that we need to make decisions in relation to what we've heard because there is no middle ground. We either accept you or reject you. We either we either hear, accept and bear fruit or we don't. So I pray, Lord, that all of this will be clear this morning. Help my mind and my heart to be clear as I preach this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to come back this morning to a question that I first posed a couple of weeks ago as I was trying to introduce us to this whole concept of what a parable even is. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you remember that I asked and tried to answer at least in some basic form three specific questions. Number one, I asked the question, what is a parable? And this is the definition that I gave us, that a parable is a comparative idea whose meaning doesn't lie at the surface, okay? So whatever parable Jesus gives, for example, the sower one here, it's not about sowing, that's really not his point. But the, the meaning lies deeper and it forces us to think more deeply in order to elicit a response for us. And this is important because as we will see through Mark and through all the Gospels, this method of teaching is one of Jesus' favorites. He uses it very effectively and very often, and so we want to at least have some understanding of what that is. If you want more information, go on our website. You can hear that. Uh, number two, I asked the question, how are they to be understood? And the answer to that one, class, does anyone remember they're to be understood? Plainly, thank you. Plainly, normally, meaning you just read them and take them as they're written. Okay, you don't need to read a whole bunch of mystical things in. Jesus often explains the parables for us or the writer who records them does. And so we want to take those, those explanations and just read these parables plainly, normally, and not make more out of them than we should. But it was the third question that I asked that I want to focus on today. I asked the question, why are parables used? And I gave you an answer that while sufficient, and I think accurate, just stated as short as it was, I, I don't know is fully understood. The answer I gave you as to why parables are used 
was to reveal truth to some and yet hide it from others. And that's what I want to come back to this morning. I want to come back to that question and specifically that answer and answer it perhaps a little more fully by looking at three specific verses here in the middle of this parable about the sower. In verses 10 to 12, we read the following words, that when Jesus was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And so I want to just walk us through these three verses this morning by doing something that, from a stylistic perspective, I don't typically do. I'm going to alliterate. That wasn't quite as dramatic for you as it was for me. I'm going to walk you through this with three Ds. Three Ds this morning that I think will hopefully help us remember what Jesus, understand what Jesus is getting at here. Number one, I want to draw your attention to the dual audiences that are here in these three verses. And you find these two audiences separated for us by Christ himself here in verses 10 and 11. On the one hand, you have what I will call a group of insiders who are here with Jesus. And you see this group referenced in verse 10 as Mark sets up this conversation. He says that when Jesus was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And I I would just remind you of what Mark is doing here. If I could just insert something real quick. Remind you of what Mark is doing here from a structure perspective. He's using that that literary, that rhetorical technique that we know as intercalation. If you don't know what that word means, again, you have to go back and listen because I'm not going to re-explain it all. But but in other words, it's it's known as sandwiching. In other words, in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, we begin out at the sea, inside the sea with Jesus in a boat and he's teaching the crowds, right? You saw that there in verse chapter 4, verse 1, and that's a very public setting. His audience at that point is really broad and perhaps very large, and that public setting will continue from verse 1 all the way up until verse 9. And in verse 10, you clearly see that the scene switches now, and now we're no longer in this public setting. Now we're we're in some private setting somewhere later after his, his time of public teaching. And that private setting goes from from verse 10, I now think all the way to verse 25. I think I've made a decision on this. I I think it goes all the way to verse 25. And then starting in verse 26, you go back to the public scene again. This is what we know as intercalation, where you insert a story in the middle of another story in order to make a point. And it's in light of that then that I find it intriguing that Jesus himself draws a sharp distinction between these two audiences to whom he is teaching. As I said, on the one hand, you have this group of insiders here in verse 10, and Mark defines that group as consisting of those around Jesus with the 12. And and, and just remember that as we read the Gospels and as Jesus is walking from place to place and scene to scene, it's not just him and the 12 as if it's a group of 13. Often you get the idea that there's kind of an entourage with him of other people who believe they don't happen to have the title apostle, but they're still there with him. And these are individuals who are close enough to Jesus. They are committed enough to Jesus to stay with him when he is off duty. Now, I did it that way for a purpose because is Jesus ever off duty? No, of course not, right? But, but, but what I mean by this is this is the group that gets to go you know, backstage and hang out with the band. 
Right? Everybody can, can come to the concert. Everybody can sit out in the crowd and listen. But not everyone gets to go backstage. These are the friends. These are the followers. These are the people who, at least outwardly, have made it clear that they believe that Jesus is who and what he says he is. And as such, they get three things. Number one, this group of insiders get special access to Jesus. They get to be with him at times when he's not out teaching the crowd. Excuse me, teaching the crowds around him. Number two, they get a special opportunity to ask him questions that nobody else gets. Can you imagine that wonderful privilege? And number three, they get the amazing privilege of hearing Jesus teach in much more details than the crowds will ever get. So, so this is audience number one. The second audience, though, is then defined for us by Jesus in verse 11 when he says, to you, you insiders, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything else is in parables. And this is why I said that Jesus himself is separating these two audiences here in verses 10 and 11. He says to the insiders, to you, I'm giving one thing. But, but to everyone else, they're, they're getting something different. They're getting parables. These outsiders are the crowds who come to hear Jesus day after day, week after week, month after month throughout his public ministry, and yet seem by all outward appearances and signs and actions recorded in the Gospels to be completely unaffected by his teaching, completely unchanged by who and what he says he is. These are the religious leaders, right, who who come and they witness his miracles. They are present at some of the most amazing scenes in the gospel and yet turn around and accuse Jesus of doing those same things by the power of Satan. These are his family members who have grown up with him. They have seen his life in the most intimate of ways, and yet they go out and tell people he's out of his mind. Whoever these people are, these outsiders are the people who at least outwardly have made it clear that they do not believe that Jesus is who and what he says he is, okay? You understand the difference between the insiders, those who are with him, and these outsiders to whom he speaks? And, and I just would stop here, if I could, for a moment and, and make an observation, a couple of observations, three observations quickly that I think need to be made here before we move on, just because they were convicting to me. First, notice that the dividing line between these outsiders and these insiders it's none other than Jesus himself. In other words, it's not their religious affiliation. It's not because they are followers of Judaism or followers of whatever ism you want to throw out there. That's not what defines an outsider versus an insider. It's not their nationality. It's not because they've got a card in their pocket that says, I'm a member, a citizen of the nation of Israel. It's not their ethnicity. It's not because they are blood descendants of Abraham. And it's not their personal uprightness how well they have kept God's commands and laws. No, the thing that makes them outsiders or insiders is their decision of what to do with this man, Jesus. That is what places them in one of these two camps. Hold that thought for a moment. Second, notice that there's no third camp. It says there are insiders and outsiders and a group of people who haven't yet made up their minds. Just to point out the obvious. There's no neutral group here. That's why throughout Mark, and even this morning as I was praying and thinking through this, I just I wanted to emphasize to you again, you either accept Jesus or you reject him. There is no middle ground. Do you understand that? 
I say it to you if you're a believer. I say it to you if you're an unbeliever. There is no middle ground with this man. Because he has claimed to be much more than any other man. And you either accept that truth or you reject that truth. But whatever you choose, you have to choose because there is no third camp. And if you have not accepted him and become an insider, you are by default an outsider, I would remind you. Third, then, think about the fact that there is movement between the camps, and thankfully so. Meaning, as outsiders hear the gospel and respond in faith to the good news that God has sent his son to die for them, they get to become insiders, right? That's, the, that's the, the great hope we have. That's the mission that the church has, to go out and preach that message to all those who are outside, calling them in. And yet the sad reality is, is that unfortunately, as the case is here with Judas, sometimes those who appear to be insiders are really outsiders. Wolves in sheep's clothing, tares among the wheat. Think of all the images that Jesus himself gives us of people who from the outward appear to be believers and yet are not. And this will be the case until Jesus comes. And so as we attempt to understand why Jesus uses these parables, I just we, we, we cannot begin to understand his reasoning until we recognize the dual audiences that are before him there in that day and that are quite frankly before us as well, here even in our midst perhaps. That's the, the first D, the dual audiences. Here's the second one. There's a distinct topic at, at view here in this section. Because, what's again, what's interesting to me is that Jesus' reasoning for using parables here with these outsiders doesn't actually begin with the audience to whom he's speaking. In other words, it's not just because they're outsiders. It's, it's actually something just a little bit before that. And as I mentioned last week, his main topic, you see it here in this section, is the kingdom of God. You see it when he says in verse 11 to the insiders, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And it's because of this then that he speaks differently to those outside. And I want to just talk you through briefly a couple of things here. First, why does Jesus call this the secret of the kingdom of God? You ever thought about that? Sharon told me that the Greek word here for secret is the word mysterion. Sorry, I had one more time to use that. You don't know why I said that. Don't worry about it. Mysterion. This is where we get our English word mystery. And, and I point that out because depending on what translation you have in front of you, your translation might use the word mystery and not the word secret. And there's a reason that, that translators go back and forth with this. It's because in English, our word mystery means something different than what it meant for them. See, for us, when we hear the word mystery, we think of something you know, maybe that happened, but nobody really knows why it happened or we think of a, the body that was found, but who done it? We think of the crop circles in the field. What caused them, right? We, we have some, some knowledge of something, but we don't quite understand it fully. It's a mystery to us. That's how we use the word mystery. That's not how they use the word mystery. This is why our ESV translators use the word secret, because the word used here is used to refer to a truth that was previously unknown, but that is now being revealed. Okay? It's not that it was known, just not really understood. It, it was unknown. It was unknown, but is now being revealed. So, for example, a couple of months ago, right, Jamie and I surprised our kids with a, a vacation. 
We, we didn't tell them. We didn't tell a whole lot of people. We, we planned it out. We were going to go to Williamsburg for a week, and we wanted to surprise them with it. And so, you know, we did all kinds of, of planning, and I took them to Panera that Monday morning. We were working on a school project, right, which they had thought about it, would have realized this makes no sense. Why is dad working on a school project? But kids don't always think logically. So that's your ace in the hole, right, right there. So we're there, we're working on the school project, and we come back home, and there's Jamie sitting in the other car, the bags are packed, the, the pillows are in the back seat, the kids look at it, and now, now is the moment for the big reveal. Guess what? Surprise! We're going on vacation. Yay! Everybody's happy, right? That was the mysterion, the mystery of our vacation. It was the, the secret or the truth that was previously unknown that is now, now being revealed to them. Truth was known to us. Jamie and I had known it for months. We had been planning all this for months. We had chosen to reveal it to some in certain pieces along the way to prepare us to leave, but not to others. But when the moment came, we finally revealed our secret, our, our truth, our mystery to Nathaniel and Hannah, and we had a great vacation. This is how Jesus views the truths of the kingdom of God. That there are truths, there are facts, there are realities about God's kingdom that have been up to this point unknown to man, just simply not revealed. Those truths were known to God. They've been part of his plan since eternity past, and it has been his prerogative to reveal parts of that plan at certain times to certain people, but not the parts he doesn't want to. And now Jesus has come on the scene, as we saw last week in Mark chapter 1. He comes and he proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand. And so now it's time to help them understand what this kingdom is going to be. And so to these insiders, he begins to reveal the secrets, the unknown truths of the kingdom of God that were previously unknown up to this point. Are now, they're now being made known to his people. In what sense then, secondly, is the coming of the kingdom of God a, a secret, a mystery, an unknown? I mean, didn't God himself tell Israel that he would come and establish his kingdom in the Old Testament? Well, well, yeah, he did. But note that he did not elaborate exactly how it would come and how it would work. And therefore, unfortunately, people expected some very, very different things. You see, the people of Jesus' day were eager for the Messiah to come. You wouldn't believe that since they crucified him, right? But, but in, in reality, they're eager for the Messiah to come and establish God's kingdom. They just pictured it wrong. See, they pictured a mighty prince coming in power and glory to overthrow Rome and set up a, a, a kingdom there in Israel. They pictured political, military, social might on display for everyone to see, putting Israel above its foes, triumphing above its foes in every way. They pictured vindication. They pictured justice as they understood that. They pictured a grand scene that God didn't at least for now. Because rather than a mighty prince, what do they get? A carpenter from Nazareth. I mean, it would almost be funny if it wasn't so sad. Rather than an overthrow of Rome, they get a man who willingly eats with tax collectors and tells people to honor Caesar. You hear that from their ears and recognize how that sounds. Rather than a military hero, they get a man who is meek and humble, who even allows himself to be arrested and killed 
by the very people they hoped he would overthrow, rather than hearing soaring oratory about the coming vindication of their woes, they hear messages filled with woes aimed at them over their sin against God. And rather than bringing justice as they saw it against those deemed worthy of punishment, they get a message of grace and mercy and forgiveness for all. The coming of God's kingdom wasn't anything, anything like what they had envisioned, not in the slightest. And so Jesus, by by means of these parables, begins to teach everyone. Everyone gets this teaching because he says it publicly. Insiders, outsiders, all of them hear it. They get this message of what the the kingdom of God is really going to look like. That's that's what I was trying to explain last week, though I, I feel like I didn't do it well. I mean, that happens to me quite a bit where I go home later and I'm like, that sounded better at my desk than it did at the podium. Uh, you know, last week we talked through the parable of the sower, and my point was, as we read that parable, let's not just focus on the soils, because that's what everybody does. And certainly there's truth there, there's value there, you learn things there. Jesus himself, I think, is making points there. But the ultimate point of that parable is not about how people receive the gospel. It's about how the kingdom of God is going out. That's what it's ultimately about. If you don't understand that, then... You don't really get all the other components, I think, of that parable. Jesus is trying to help his his believers and even those outside have some concept of what this kingdom of God is really going to look like. And so that's the second D, this this, um, uh, point that he's making here about the kingdom of God. It's very distinct, and we, we need to see that. Number three, then, and getting to the point this morning, is the differing responses you see. Because after telling these insiders that it is their privilege to know the secrets of the kingdom, he tells them that for the outsiders, those same secrets will only be communicated in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And we read those words and we're like, what What does that mean? Well, It's important to note at the beginning that Jesus is quoting a portion, a portion of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 6 is best known to most of us if we've grown up in church for any length of time. It's known to us as that passage where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up on his throne and his glory is filling the temple. And and he sees seraphim flying around and they shout out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When Isaiah sees this, he falls to his knees and he says those famous words. Do you remember what they are? Does anyone? Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. This section we know so well from for that portion. We even know the next little portion pretty well, too, if you've grown up in certain kinds of churches. Because after this, immediately God asks a question. He says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah responds with those well-known words. Here am I. Send me. And normally, normally that's as far as anyone ever gets in Isaiah 6 because they cut cut it right there because that preaches really well if you stop right there, right? Because here's the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and someone needs to go reach these people. Who will go for the Lord? And all of us should in unison raise our hands and say, here am I, send me. The only problem is that's not the full context of Isaiah 6. Because what God is asking Isaiah to do is, is not to go reach an unreached people group as this passage is often used. 
Nor is he asking him to to take the gospel to those who have never heard some, some group that desperately needs to hear what God has to say to them. No, he's looking to send someone to the people of Israel who have absolutely no desire to hear what God has to say. None. God knows they have no desire to hear it. Isaiah knows they have no desire to hear it. And God wants to send Isaiah anyway. God is sending Isaiah with the full knowledge that his people do not want to hear from him. That Isaiah's work will be, in that sense, fruitless. And if you read that passage and you go back and you study it and you think that what God is trying to do is to to get the people to respond, you don't understand what God is doing there. He's actually not trying to get the people to respond. He's simply confirming them where they are. You don't want to hear? Fine. I'm going to send another messenger so you can ignore him. You don't want to see? Fine. I'll send someone else so you don't have to look at him. You don't want to hear? You don't want to understand? You don't want to turn? You don't want to be forgiven? Okay. You see, it's this passage and it's this context that Jesus quotes here in his explanation of why he speaks in parables to the outsiders. He does it so that they can see. He's making it known to them, but they don't want to perceive. He, he's saying it so that they may indeed hear, but continue not understanding And all of this not perceiving and not understanding leads to the ultimate end of them not turning and not being forgiven. Now that leads to a question, or at least it leads me to a a question. Why don't they see? Why don't they hear? Why, Why don't they turn? Is it because they don't want to? I mean, it's what I'm saying, but why am I saying that? Or is it because maybe God isn't letting them turn, letting them see, letting them hear? Well, I think that in this particular case, that question can be very easily answered if we look at Matthew's account of this same incident in Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 15. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it behind me so you can see it. Matthew records the same story this way. Then the disciples came. This is right after he tells the story of the parables. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. In their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Those who don't want to see or hear or turn, Jesus gives them truth in a manner that will allow them to continue doing exactly what they want to do. This is why I said that my definition is sufficient. It just needed more understanding. And speaking to them in parables, he is revealing truth to some. And yet at the same time, hiding it from others who really, truly don't want to hear. And in doing so, we're reminded of the ever-present balance, I think, between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in these matters of salvation. That no one ever rejects Christ because God made them. That no one 
ever rebels against God because God made them do it. You hear people ask those kinds of questions and say those kinds of things. And I'm telling you this morning that never, ever happens because people reject Christ because they want to reject him. They rebel against God's rule and reign over them because they want to. Rebellion and rejection are, as I said at the beginning, man's default states. Do you understand that? It is how we are born. It is how we came into this world. And it takes a divine work of God to overcome that. Thus, Paul can say that it is by grace we have been saved through faith. That not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of of works because... He doesn't want anyone to boast or in second Timothy one, that passage that God used to open my eyes to truth about God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Look, these truths are so big, so complicated, so complex. I couldn't pretend to stand up here and explain all the intricacies and nuances of them. I can tell you two things that are true, though that God is sovereign in all, and that man is responsible for his choices. That is the scriptural teaching on it. And some people find it hard to balance those truths. But can I just, I wanted to end this way on purpose. Can I just speak to you real personally and pastorally about this? Because even as we read a passage like this and we see Jesus speaking in a way that allows them to stay in their unbelief, I think sometimes our hearts are are bothered by that because we don't know how to read that. We don't know how to understand that. And here's what I would say to you. That in my short years of talking with people, trying to help them understand, it has occurred to me that our ability to process the the tension in that balance is very much tied to our view of man and our view of God. That the higher our view of man is, the more difficult it is to understand those truths. When when our, our view of man is very high, we think, well, if God is sovereign, why am I held responsible? And sometimes people want to shake their fist at God in that question and somehow excuse themselves. You'll hear them say things like, it's not, ve- not fair, they're undeserving of punishment, etc., But I would simply remind you even of Isaiah 6. That when we have a high view of God, the reality is we begin to realize that if there's any unfairness in this equation, it's unfair to God that any of us are saved. When you see God in his holiness and you begin to realize who you are before him, you realize how undeserving of grace you are and it forces you to your knees in humility and gratefulness before God. Parents, you get this a little bit, don't you? When your kids come to you and they say, it's unfair. You're making me do this, it's unfair. I always ask my kids, do you want fair? (laughs) Do you? Because it's unfair to me that I pay for you to live in my home. It's unfair to me that I have to buy all your food. It's unfair to me and and your mother that, that all the things you have were provided by us. If you really want fair, we'll be fair. And I found yet my kids have never asked for fairness. We shake our fists at God and we say, it's not fair. I would simply speak to you as as a fellow sinner and say, you don't want fair. You don't want fair. Do you understand this? You don't want fair. Because it's not fair to be forgiven. It is fair to be punished. It is not fair that God would take all of our sins against us and throw them as far as the east is from the west away from him. That's not fair. And yet, that's the gospel. 
that God is willing to be unfair to himself for your good and his glory. Hear those words, think about them deeply, and fall to your knees in gratefulness to God that he is willing to be unfair to you so that you can be saved. The person who has a high view of a man feels undeserving of punishment. I'm telling you, the person who has a high view of God feels undeserving of forgiveness. Think about that very carefully. The issue for us today, though, as we go out is, is not to try to wrestle through all those things. People will wrestle with them forever, forever, until Christ comes again. The issue before us today is, what's your decision? What are you choosing to do with Christ? He calls everyone, the sower sows liberally. What will you do? Will you continue as an outsider in rebellion and rejection against him? Will you continue to choose to walk away from this message of forgiveness that is so free and clear? Will you continue to pretend to be an insider even though we, you know that you are not? In your pride, will you continue to sit there and hold up a facade that you know has no root, no merit, no base? You're as lost as anyone else around you, and yet you continue to live as if and claim to be a believer. And even as an insider, will you, will you be driven to your knees in thankfulness and gratefulness for all that God has done, recognizing that apart from Christ, you would have no hope? Recognizing that apart from Christ, you would continue to be in rebellion, and apart from Christ, that you would continue to refuse Him? Folks, I am calling you this morning to make a decision about who Jesus is, about what he's claimed to be, to respond then in either gratitude or rejection. I know that sounds weird, but I'm telling you, you respond in gratitude and thankfulness and humility and love or just reject him and leave. You have to make a decision about Jesus. Father, we come to you now. And I feel like I've done such a poor job calling people to this this morning, but it's not, it's ultimately not about my words, it's about your spirit. And so, Father, if there is anyone in this room this morning who does not, has not fallen at their knees before you, then I pray, Lord, this morning that your spirit's conviction on their heart will be so strong that they will be miserable until they respond. You sow liberally. The message goes out to all. All are called. And Father, I pray now that as some in here perhaps who have never accepted you as their Savior hear this call again this morning, that that they will respond in faith, placing all their trust in you, recognizing that all they have is you and you alone. And for those in here this morning who are believers, Lord, drive us to our knees as well. Remind us of this glorious gospel of unfairness. That our hope is in your unfairness. That you are willing to overlook all that we have done because of your son's sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you for for taking our sins upon yourself so that we could be forgiven. We would have no hope if not for you. But you came, you died, you rose again, and now we have hope for life evermore because of your sacrifice. Jesus, thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for your word.
I pray that it will bear fruit this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.